0: we are in the church calendar in the season of Lent. And one of the interesting things about Lent is that it's a walk and a journey with God. Now, for some of us who don't grow up, like I didn't grow up celebrating or even thinking about Lent. So it's something I really had to grow into. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about Lent is that it, it does a good job of holding tensions, right? When we think about tension in our society and our culture, we think about things that clash together, right? Or, or things that pull us apart. However, I think scripturally um, and just in the life and walk with God, It's not about things that's supposed to butt heads or pull us apart. It's just two things that are true that we have to hold at the same time. And and so the season of Lent, there's this idea of how do we hold on to God while remembering that God is holding on to us? The church traditionally has understood Lent two ways, right? Two things that don't clash or pull apart, but you just have to hold. Um, The first focus of Lent has been Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days before he begins his ministry, 40 days of fasting and prayer and the Holy Spirit coming upon him. But it's also been the, 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 the church is focused on not just the wilderness, but Jesus' march towards Calvary. And so you'll see time and time in the Gospels is that he set his face towards Jerusalem. So the church hasn't said that these two things fight or these two things pull us apart. they are just saying in this season of Lent, we need to remember the wilderness and the march towards Calvary. In the wilderness for us, we, we, we focus on prayer and, and self-denial, repentance and reconciliation. But as we think about Calvary, before we get to, you know, uh, uh, washing his disciples' feet and and Good Friday, that's only good because it's good for us, right? And and then Easter or Resurrection Sunday, we, we have to march and take up our cross too. We have to think through the season of what was the purpose of of Jesus going to Calvary? What was the glory that was ahead of him? The sacrifice? And then what do we actually celebrate? So we hold all that together in Lent. I wanted to begin there because one, we're in the season of Lent. But two, if we understand this idea that sometimes the troops of God are not supposed to clash or pull us apart, they're just supposed to be held together, I think that helps us understand Nehemiah 8 and 9. Because in Nehemiah 8 and 9, we have two things that seem to be intention, right? God's law and God's goodness, right? God's law. And, and, and a lot of times for us, especially those of us who are New Testament people, right? We think about God's laws like it's stiff and it's unbending and it's unrelenting. But now we get the New Testament. He's so gracious, right? However, I think in Nehemiah 8 and 9, we see that the law and the goodness of God aren't supposed to pull the people apart they're actually both supposed to be held because they're both important. So the tension that we make about law and God's goodness is really a tension that's our own. It's not supposed to clash or pull us apart. Instead, it's supposed to be held in shalom, right? And shalom is this idea of harmony, right? Like peanut butter and jelly, right? Or like me and kale. That's a joke, I hate kale, right? Like it's supposed to be held together like two things that just make sense. So the law and grace, so the law and goodness is what we're going to be focusing on. Now, hopefully you got a chance to read through Nehemiah 8 and 9 this week. I'm not going to read through all the chapters, but I wanted to read through the verse 12, um, 1 to 12. So we'll start there. So if you have Nehemiah, I think it's 8, and we're going to do 1 to 12. So I'll read that, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get right in here. So starting at verse 1, it says, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Verse two. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, before which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Besides him, on his right stood Methuselah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. And on his left were Pedaiah, Meshael, Makija, Makija, I think, yeah, Makhija, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them as he opened it. The people stood up. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord. The great God and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebi, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law And the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, verse 10, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. The day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people down saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are indeed the God of law, but also the God of goodness. We thank you that even in your law, we see mercy and grace and compassion. And Lord, in your goodness, we see not only the story of the world, not only the story of what you've done for all of us, but also the story for what you've done for us individually. Lord, we thank you that all of us are here this morning based on miracles after miracles after miracles. We thank you for the blessing of knowing you. We thank you for the blessing of understanding your word. We thank you for the blessing of being able to not only tell our story, but to find what our story fits into your story and your plan for the world bless us now as we get into this passage help us to grow closer to you thank you for loving us so holy spirit thank you for your presence in this room for how you live inside of us and work in and through us to transform us into the image of the Son. and you lord jesus christ we thank you for being our messiah our savior our friend our redeemer in your name we pray amen So you guys have been going through Nehemiah. So this is kind of tricky because I'm jumping in the middle of the movie. Uh, But I thought some some overview that's kind of helpful for us uh, is that we don't necessarily read the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. Um, I don't know why we decided to split it up, but we decided to split it up, right? Uh, But I think if you understand them as one book, it's kind of helpful because the whole portions of Ezra and Nehemiah are telling this story of these Jewish exiles who had left and had been forced out into Babylon and who are coming back to resettle in Judah. Now that's fascinating for many reasons. One of the reasons is that in the Old Testament, God had promised them not only the land, but God has says, if you're faithful to me and keep my covenant, you will be in the land, right? But after years and generations of people not being faithful, you have the Assyrians the and the Babylonians who not only take over, but take the best and the brightest into exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah, both books combined as one in the Hebrew Bible, are retelling this story. And one of the reasons that we know it's one book is that if you look at the structure of the book, right? And the structure has these two or three things that show up all the time in both books, right? So for example, you start off in Ezra with a guy named Zerubbabel, right? And then you get to Ezra himself, and then you get to Nehemiah. But all of them are coming back to resettle Judah, and all of them accomplish something. And you see this happening time and time again. So for example, Zerubbabel is from the line of David, So we're introduced to him as like someone who's royalty, right? Someone who, yes, they're exiles and refugees. But when this guy comes back, we're like, oh, he's from the line of David. Well, he comes back. He gets a decree from the king at the time, which was Cyrus. And he goes back to do what? To rebuild the temple. Then we meet Ezra, who comes to the line of Aaron. So that tells us that, oh, no, no. First, we have royalty. But now we have the priestly line, right? We have Ezra, who comes from the line of Aaron. Now the king is Artaxerxes. And he comes back. And his, his job is to... To set apart the people as holy. And we have to pause here because I think a lot of people misinterpret this section of Ezra, right? Because a lot of people look at this and there's like, see, this is proof that God doesn't want us to marry people who are different than us, right? People who are a different race. And and there's a lot of Christians who actually taught that, right? We live in an America where I think until 1960, if you were black, you couldn't marry a white person, right? And, And so this isn't something that's like really far fetched. But I think what's interesting is if you actually study the text, what God was calling his people was to holiness. It wasn't race that was the reason you should be separated. It was actually the fact that if you marry someone who doesn't believe in God and who's pulling you away from God and leading you away from God, God does not think that's holy. So the action of uh, the, the, the interaction or, or, or Ezra and Nehemiah asking the people to actually break these unions is because he's saying, you have not been faithful to God. It doesn't mean it was an easy thing to do. Imagine being married for 30 years and you come back to Judah and they're like, well, that was nice and all, but it's not honoring to God, so you have to do it. So this wasn't an easy ask either. Now, when we get to Nehemiah himself, again, we don't know what line he's from. So first we have the royal line, then we have the priestly line, then we just have a normal person, which I think is good. It makes me feel good because I'm not royal priestly, right? So the normal people also get a part to play. So Nehemiah shows up, Artaxerxes is still on the throne, but when he comes back, it's to rebuild the temple again, but to also fix the city gates and to rebuild the city. So he has a lot of reforms where he'll be calling people back to come investing in the country. Now, what's interesting is whether you're Zerubbabel, Ezra, or Nehemiah, there's always opposition. And so one of the things you have to understand is that they didn't have bibles like we did right like didn't have chapters and verses and numbers right they read from scrolls so if you picture the actual scroll um you unroll it right and so what's interesting is when you look at the the literary structure of how things were written this sounds really nerdy and not that important but just put it this way there's a difference between an email right and a letter there's a difference between a letter And you know, the Constitution, right? There's a difference between the Constitution and a novel, there's a difference between a novel and autobiography. Every time we write has literary structure. And what's interesting about the Old Testament, even the New Testament, is they often have something called a chiastic structure, meaning that you will have something that happens and it will marry it with something similar. And then something similar, something similar. But the most important thing you want to people to remember will be in the center, right? And you're like, why is that? Well, we still say, like, what's the center of it all? What's the heart of the matter? That's where that comes from. But it's also very practical because the scroll was closed up. And when you open up the scroll, guess where you would begin? In the center. So if you wanted someone to remember something, you'd be like, I'm gonna put it right there. When you open the scroll, it's right in front of you. You got it, right? So that's what they did. Now the center is the opposition. So when Zerubbabel goes to rebuild the temple, people rise up against them. And he actually needs Haggai and Zechariah to actually encourage the people to do the work. The center of, of, of Ezra, when he goes and says, listen, these marriages aren't holy, is the people actually saying, if this is what God wants, even though it's hard, we will do it. Now, in the center of Nehemiah, when he comes and says, you know what, we need to rebuild this temple on the city gates, the center is actually Nehemiah serving with the poor. And you see all this in the breakdown of the literary structure. Now, the, the last part of Nehemiah, which is kind of where eight and nine happens, is, is there's a bunch of lists and reforms. But again, our focus is going to be on eight and nine. Now there's a bunch of themes in this combined book, right? So there's the idea that like, we're exiles, we're not in our country, we're coming back to rebuild. That's the overall theme. But there's also things that show up a bunch of times. I had a teacher who once said that repetition indicates significance. So if you see something happening over and over in the Bible, it's probably because it's important. And so some of these themes that show up is that you see a lot of lists of people, which for us, we just gloss over If you're like me as a kid, you just get glossy. I'm like, are we keep reading these names, right? But there's a reminder though, that God sees the work of every individual. There's a reminder that every single person matters, that everything that's done for the kingdom matters. Like that's why we keep seeing these lists because God wanted to see like in my scriptures, in my word, what you did for me matters. The second thing is that you see the importance of a spiritual lives in the life of the people right? Our spiritual leaders, right? Like we all know the blessing of good leaders. And I pray none of us know the curse of bad leaders, right? Especially in the church or in the community, right? Or in the, our spiritual realm. And so time and time again, you'll see God putting up these leaders and showing these are the leaders who look like me, which is very important because in the Old Testament, there are a lot of leaders who didn't look like God. So you see the importance of spiritual leaders. Another one that shows up, especially in Ezra and Nehemiah, is the importance of prayer in doing God's work. God assumes that if you're reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, God assumes that if you're going to do something for God, there's going to be difficulty. Right in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see difficulty come from people on the outside, people on the inside, even from their own doubts. Right, but there's this value placed on prayer that when we pray, when we converse, when we have conversation with God, again, it's not just us talking, right? Like, that's not a conversation, like, prayer also has to be us listening. Like, what is this spirit saying? What is God saying to me? It's not just what I have to dump on God, but can I sit in the presence of God and truly hear from God? So in this conversation, we learned that yes, there will be opposition, but God's gonna push us through. And then lastly, the theme that shows up is obedience, right? Are we being obedient to the law? Are we be obedient to the Sabbath? Are we be obedient to, to the holiness? What does holiness look like? For some people, it was practically saying, this marriage is not honoring to God. I have to walk away from it. For other people, it was saying, I am entering into the house of the Lord. Have I prepared my heart for worship? So you see all these themes coming time and time again. So that's your general overview. Now we'll get to chapter 8 and 9. So in chapter 8 and 9, basically, Ezra gathers the people and he's going to read the law. And it's very interesting to me because some churches, so like, for example, in a lot of Black churches, when you read scripture, everybody stands up. I almost did that to y'all morning this point about, like, mm, we're going to choose grace, not law, right? But in that setting, it's, it's, it's an Old Testament thing, right? So if you're not, if you're like, go to a Black church and they say, please stand for the reading of scripture, for some of us, we're like, this is weird. But for them, like, it's in the Bible. That's what they did. In the Old Testament, when the scripture was read, people would stand up. And it was this idea of not saying the scripture is the fourth member of the Trinity and it's that important, but it was actually saying that like, this is God's word and we need to stand at attention, right? So Ezra gathers all the people, they put them on this big tower, he's reading the scripture. And what I love is that just the reading of the scripture is enough to solicit praise, is enough to get brokenness. And it's enough for people to realize that something ain't right in how I'm living. And then he reads the scripture. And then you have the second group of Levites, the names that I rush through, right? When you get to these Hebrew names, you just got to say them confidently and keep going, right? You just got to keep pushing through, right? But you have all these listed people who show up. Now the Levites were priestly. They were set apart to teach. And I love that even as Ezra is reading the scripture, there's people there to explain the scripture, who've been trained, who've been called, right? And there's this idea that God's law is God's law, but sometimes there's going to be things that we might need someone to help us explain, right? And, and then you also have to understand that this is not a, a culture that was literary. This is not a culture that read, right? This is not a culture that even understood the language. remember, they've been in exile, right? So their native language is probably like Aramaic, and now you need people who understood the Hebrew, right? To actually translate. So the Levites come, They instruct it and they make it clear. But again, from the teaching of the scripture, from the instruction that makes it clear, the people are moved to praise, the people are broken. And so Ezra and Nehemiah and all the Levites see them crying and weeping and they say, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. Like today is a day of celebration because you understand what God is saying to you. Today is a day of celebration. Do not weep. Today is holy. I need you to go out and celebrate and we need to have a festival. And what's also interesting is as they celebrate, it wasn't just go to your house, right? And make your favorite meal. It was go to your house, make your favorite meal, but make sure you make enough for someone who might not have. So even in our celebration and praise, God has this idea that it's not just for you and yours. It's for as many people as come in contact with. So the people celebrate, and what are they celebrating? That they understand the law of God, that they understand what God's expectations for them was, that they understand what God wants them to do. But in the second half of verse uh, chapter 8, we have this thing where the people come back again after the celebration. They're like, hey, now that we understand the law, we were reading something, and, and we feel like there's this festival that we need to do, but we don't know what it quite means and understand." And what they're talking about is something called the festival of, of the tabernacle or booths, right? And this is something that the Jews today still practice called Sukkot. And, and what's interesting is that this festival was to commemorate two things, right? These were an agrarian people. So you celebrated the harvest, right? And I never understood this until I started interacting with people with Southern Africa who pray for rain. Like I'm driving from Pennsylvania and it's raining. I'm like, this is too much rain, right? But there's people in Southern Africa who pray for rain, Like we pray for, I don't even know what you pray for, the hardness, right? But because like they need that rain to survive, right? So there was this chance or this opportunity in this agrarian society that when we pray and God blesses us and we have a harvest, we ought to praise it. But it's also something deeper because the festival of the tabernacle or the booths was also to remind them of God's great deliverance in the exodus. And so Ezra, who's brilliant, and Nehemiah are able to combine these two things and say like, yeah, praise God, he's been good and provided for you, but never forget that he saw us suffering in Egypt, that he saw us and did all these miracles, and finally he led us out of Egypt. And even though we weren't faithful in the desert, he was faithful to us. Celebrate that too. So when the people hear this and they understand it, they start celebrating and today in Israel, you go to any synagogue, you ask them about Sukkot, they still do this, right? And part of it is they would build like a temporary shelter, and they would, some people were very strict. They would only eat in that shelter for the week. But it was this idea of like how God has his presence among us and how God has provided for us, not just the food we eat, but salvation. And for them, it was Exodus. But then when we get to chapter nine. There's a new setting, right? The people have gathered again to worship. They're, they're 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 gathered to celebrate that God's made them holy and set them apart. They've confessed and they're searching through the law. Now the Levites, again chosen, holy, uh, priestly line. They gather and they lead people in praise. And chapter nine has one of the greatest, I think, prayers in all of Scripture. But they talk about how blessed our God is, how exalted our God should be. And then they talk about how God is the creator of everything. Which to us, that's not a big deal. We're like, yeah, God created everything. That's cool. We have to understand these are people who have been Israel, then Israel and Judah, then exposed to Samaritans and Sumerians, then exposed to Babylonians. And all these different people have different ideas of God. So the idea that God creates everything and that their God, the God of Israel, is the God over all, was actually mind-blowing to them. And I think we take for granted that our God created everything, right? We just think about that's cool, He's God, that's what He does, right? But to them it was just like, no, 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 no. The God who loves me is the God who spoke the world into existence. The God who cares for us is the God who through all Him all things are made. But then something very interesting happens in the rest of chapter 9 is they tell what I would call the story of God, right? So they go through and says, remember, right? And this is a prayer. And the prayer is really in telling the story of God because again, you can't assume everyone knows the story. So they said, we praise this God who created everything. We praise this God who's the Lord of the universe. We praise this God and we bless him for he's so good to us. But remember, God chose Abram. From Ur of Chaldees. God chose Abram and made a nation out of him. God chose Abram and made a covenant with him that would bless not just Israel, but all the world, right? And then they continue God saved us. Let us out of Egypt, let us through the Red Sea on dry ground. Let us through the wilderness. And though we complain, he provided manna for us. And though we couldn't see at night, he provided a pillar of fire. And during the day, he provided a cloud. God provided not just manna for us to eat, but Moses and Miriam and Aaron and leaders like Caleb who could push us forward. And God provided the law for us. I think just uh, wanna give a quick example of the law that we sometimes miss. We read this law as being so restrictive but you have to understand the context of the people. To this day, many Orthodox Jews wear tassels on their clothes, right? Tassels on their clothes. It looks like your grandma's curtains, right? Like, that's what I mean by tassels. And we see it, we're like, wow, that looks weird. Like, why are they doing that? Well, there was a law that says, if you belong to me, put tassels on your clothes. And again, from our perspective, it's just like, that's just real strange. I don't, like, that's just weird. But if you go back to the culture and context of them in the wilderness and all the nations they were exposed to, the only people who put tassels on their clothes were royalty. So you have a people coming out of slavery for 400 years. You have a people who haven't had a voice or rights or cares. And God says to you, not only are you mine, but every morning when you wake up, I want you to be reminded that you are royalty. And that's why they wear tassels even to this day. So we look at laws and we just like, oh, that's just restrictive. But for God, in these 619, we believe, Right. You can argue that, but you need a PhD, but it's about 619, right? But in these laws, there's a slither of God's grace all throughout. And so God is telling these people, yeah, I don't want you to dress like Grandma Curtains, but I want you to know that it's not just the people up high who are royalty, but everyone who belongs to me. And then you have this interesting line where they then say, well, yeah, God's good. He provided for us. He was amazing. But then they characterize themselves as a stiff-necked people. And they ask forgiveness for what? their ancestors had done. And I think the verse I want us to hold on to this morning is Nehemiah 9.17, because I think it sums up not just who the people were, but who our God is. In Nehemiah 9.17, speaking of their ancestors, and this is something that's interesting because a lot of times when people say, your ancestor did this, right? Our reaction is to say, well, I wasn't me. I wasn't there. But that's not what God's people do. God's people actually say this, right? they not only ask for forgiveness for their ancestors, they work to make things right. And that's a challenge to us who are very quick to say, well, I wasn't there, I had nothing to do with me. But it's what they say in 917. Speaking of their ancestors, not even them, but their ancestors, what they did, it said they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. The idea of stiff-necked isn't just like, You're staring forward, but it's like you can't turn, right? I don't know if you ever had a really sore neck that you can't move, that you have to move your entire body to turn. That was the idea of how these people were so stiff-necked to turn away from God, so focused on them and and me and mine, instead of God and the kingdom, that they were only going the wrong way, and that's all they cared about. And that's who the people were. But the second half of 917 shows us who our God is, right? Says, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. And so the context of telling the story of God was that God's compassion shows up. Even when we are stiff necked even when we don't follow him, even if our ancestors have done wrong that we don't want to make right, God's compassion still shows up. It shows up in manna. It shows up in leaders. It shows up in his law. It shows up in grace. And God's grace is what leads them to the promised land. And though the people rebel, time and time again, God sends them deliverance, not just in Exodus, but through leaders who will pull them back to him. And then at the end of chapter nine, after saying, God, we know we've let you down for generations. We know that's why we're in exile. We know we fell short and we've been stiff necked Not only are we asking for forgiveness, but we are going to rely on you because you're forgiving. Not only are we asking for grace, but we're going to rely on you because you're gracious. Not only are we going to rely on you for compassion, we're going to rely on you for compassion. And a quick word about compassion. When we think of compassion and we think of God, right? We think of it as just automatic, right? He's God, he loves us, he's compassionate. The Old Testament writers, when they think of compassion, it's something that comes down from deep within. So the closest thing we have, and as a man, it feels weird saying this, but the closest thing we have is the idea, right, of a woman birthing a child. That's how they think of God's compassion. Now, I dare you to go up to a woman who's had a baby and be like, I'm just glad that was automatic. You know, I'm just glad that happened and you were good, right? You just blinked and it happened because you're a woman, so you provide babies, right? No, 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 no. There's labor, (laughs) There's intensity. And and so that's how these Old Testament writers think about God's compassion, not as something automatic, but as something that comes from deep within that belongs to God and pours out and gives fruit to us. That's God's compassion. And and so they plead to God for that compassion. And lastly, they plead to God for something they called Hesed. In the New Testament, it shows up as something we call agape. So they plead to God saying that God, we're going to trust that you work together for our good. God, we're going to trust that you're always on our side. God, we're going to trust that in all things, you are good and you are with us and you will work for our good. And that's what they plead. And then after they make that pledge to God, they re-covenant and say, God, we will again be your people. We will again follow you. Now, that was a lot to hold on to. That was a lot to try to like recover and hold on to But I wanted to leave you with maybe two things that I think will be helpful as we go through this week. And to invite you even this week as you prepare for next week to read these chapters too and take some more notes, right? Because there's more that you're going to be able to get out of them. But the two things I want you to hold on to is that God desires, right, for us to celebrate his law, but also God desires for us to celebrate his goodness. God's law here isn't simply the law of Moses. It's not even simply the Bible it's scripture, but it's all of God's commands and all that God has called us to do. So we can celebrate God's commands every chance we get together to worship, right? This is something that for for the weeks or I don't know how long you guys were closed. I know for us it was months that we were closed, right? Every time you walk in to the house of the Lord, that is reason for celebration, this hit me years ago. I was a teenager and I went to the old Yankee stadium for the first time. And as a Mets fan, I hate everything Yankees, right? Like they're just, they're, they're atrocious, right? But when I walked into Yankee stadium, it was this weird thing where I'm like, wow, Babe Ruth played there. Lou Gehrig played there. This is amazing. And I felt like the Holy Spirit just let me have my moment. And then when I sat down, the Holy Spirit just had a little whisper to me. It's like, why don't you feel this way when you walk to church? And I was like, hmm, that's Interesting. Need to reassess my life you know but do we have that same awe when we come to worship the Lord and this year may have taken some of that from us for weeks or months and there's still some of us on Zoom we're not even physically together but do we truly celebrate the idea that we can worship God together another thing we need to celebrate is every time God speaks to you clearly that's what celebration that happens at eight and nine right like when they hear the word of the Lord they were broken and they cried. But when the Spirit spoke through the Levites and they understood what God was saying, they're like, wow, this is amazing. When you understand or you hear the Holy Spirit speaks to you clearly, that is reason to celebrate. The other one is celebrate everything God has done for you. right? I, I say this as like I'm not the, the best scientist in the world. but If you ask every scientist what are the law of averages for you to even be here? Just looking at literally the sperm and the egg, right? It's wild. The chances that those two would come together to form you. But then it gets even wilder than that. Think about all the miracles that God had to do. Think about all the ways God had to be faithful just for your parents to be your parents, to be the individuals that they are, to stick together to make you, right? To keep you alive, actually. And that's just your parents. But they had parents think about all the layers of of faithfulness and gracious that the God had to do to those level of grandparents, right? And we can keep going on and on and on and on, right? So to you, to even physically be here is a miracle of God's faithfulness. So when we think about this idea of everything that God's done for us, it's just this idea that even breathing and being on this side of heaven is indeed a miracle. The last one in celebrating God's law is we need to celebrate That we have a God who meets us where we are, right? If you're suffering, if you're struggling with addictions and afflictions, if there's sin that so easily ensnares you, or if you just feel so far away from God, we still have a God who meets you in that moment. God doesn't sit back and say, when you're ready, come to me. When you wash yourself off, then you can come to me. When you feel good enough, then you can come to me. No, God is with us in our suffering, in our pain, in our struggle, in our darkness. He is with us always. Just like Jesus on the cross, right? We may feel forsaken, but in the end, our God comes to us and our God is with us. And this last one in celebrating God's goodness, I think we ought to celebrate not just what God has done for us, but what God's done for the world. As we get ready to celebrate Resurrection Sunday and Easter, you must be reminded to think about the gospel, not as a type of music, but not only as Jesus dying on the cross and us believing it, that's not the full gospel. That may be how we understood gospel, but that's new to Christianity. That's not how the early Christians understood um, gospel. That's not how we understood it for probably the first thousand years. When they said gospel, it wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross. Imagine me walking into you and saying, this is the problem, without giving you the whole framework, right? When the first Christians understood gospel, they understood it as the story of God. And what was the story of God? That The God of the universe who created all things, spoke the world into existence, left heaven to come to earth. That when he came to earth, he lived and loved to show you, show me, show us how to live and love to please God. And after he lived and loved to please God, then he went to Calvary's tree. Then he died, not just for me, but for the world, for everyone who's ever lived. He died on the cross for our sins. And not only did he die on the cross for our sins, he went down to the pits of hell. And after three days, he was raised up and resurrected on that third day for God to say, the work has been done. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's done. But then after the resurrection, the story is also Jesus saying, now. I gotta go to heaven to make it perfect for you. Which is humbling to me, right? Like we can complain about this world all we want, but he spoke this into existence. Yet we believe for over 2000 years, he's been preparing heaven. Think about that for a second. He spoke the world into existence, but heaven's taken over 2000 years to make it perfect for us. Before he goes to do that, he says, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to go into the world and tell them this gospel story, but tell them everything I've taught you. Jesus seems to believe in you more than we sometimes believe in him. Because Jesus seems to believe that I'm going to leave behind the spirit, I'm going to leave behind my people, and that's going to be enough to call the world to me. So before he goes up, before he ascends to heaven, he says, Go and be my disciples. Go and be my witnesses. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember I'm with you always. Teach them everything I've taught you. And then he goes to heaven to make it perfect for us. And then we also believe that what he will come again. That's the gospel. That's the gospel story. If you just take one line of that, you're not telling the full gospel. Because it's not just important that Jesus died, it's important who Jesus was and who Jesus is. It's important how Jesus lived. It's important that he was resurrected. It's important that he sends us out. It's important that he will come back again. Amen. So as you think about the story of Jesus, as you think about the gospel, may you be reminded that we can celebrate God's commands, but we can also celebrate God's goodness. And part of celebrating God's goodness is living our lives in a way that we're submitting to Christ's commands, but also living our lives in a way that we're telling not just our story, but what God has done in and through us, but are we living to tell the story of Jesus? And I think that's what we get from Ezra and Nehemiah here in Nehemiah 8 and 9. And when God's people truly understand the word of God, they celebrate. And when they come together, they celebrate. When they hear from the Spirit, they celebrate they also tell the story of what God has done for the world, but also for them. Amen? Amen. God bless you all. Um, I guess I'll close in prayer. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your law. God, we ask forgiveness for thinking your law is just simply restrictive, and your law is something that, that holds people back, or your law is something we can't understand. For God, even in your law, there's grace and mercy and there's compassion. We thank you for how your law uplifted the dignity of a people who were enslaved, the people who were in the wilderness, the people who didn't have a land to call their own. But they're reminded that you're indeed, that you call them your treasured possession. Now of all the people of the world, you chose them. But God, we also thank you for your goodness as seen in the work that you've done, not only for us or, or me and mine, but for the entire world. So God, we pray that we are people who celebrate your goodness and your commands. Lord, this doesn't mean that it's easy. In a world that's full of war, in a world where we see people are raging war in Russia and Ukraine, but also in Ethiopia and Tigray and Eritrea, in Syria and Yemen, and in places we don't even know. In a world where people continually put themselves first and and we as humans in the center of the universe, instead of bowing down to you, in a world that's not as it should be, in a world where we fall short, even though we don't want to, We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your compassion. And Lord, we pray now that you fill us up with your love, your mercy, your grace, and compassion. That we're so full of it that it pours out of us and into our world. So Lord, we celebrate your law. We celebrate your commands. We celebrate your Holy Spirit that lives in us and teaches us and guides us. We celebrate the blessing of joining together in worship. We celebrate your goodness for what you've done for the world and what you've done for us. And we celebrate that Jesus is our King. In this holy and precious name we pray. Amen? Amen. God bless you all.